He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 146 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. Psalm 146, we'll sing all the stanzas. As God's people rested on the far side of the Jordan River, eager to take up that land of promise which God had assured them he would give, but not yet having obtained it, the Lord through Moses reminded them once more of his law. 
saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now he reminds us of the same. Because though we've not been delivered from a land of physical slavery, as those in Christ, we have been delivered from the slavery to sin. And so this law comes to us as a means of showing our thanks, but also as a means of humbling us. He says, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant, may, your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder And you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And we see that law, we hear it, and we cringe a bit, because we're tempted In each of these ways, that's why God gave those commands. They were given to show us what we're called to do as those who were enslaved by sin, who've been freed, who now must put off those chains and those shackles so that we can show love to God with all our heart and soul, mind and strength, so that we can show love to our neighbor as we love ourselves. But if we're honest, we cringe. Because we fail. We fall short. And so this law, while it teaches us how to be, how to show our gratitude, it also teaches us to confess our unworthiness. But not without hope. Just as Israel knew that they could not enter the land of promise by their own strength or by their own wisdom, so we know that we cannot enter the new heavens and the new earth by our strength or by our wisdom. We enter into God's favor and to all His promises only by Christ and by faith in Him. And so the proper response to that law is to confess that our hope and our life are found in Christ. 
We do that this morning by singing Selection 44 in our Blue Psalter hymnal. It's a rendering of a portion of Psalm 25. We'll sing all three stanzas as our confession of faith. He the meek in justice guides, making them his way to know. And this whole psalm is filled with humility. Recognition that we depend entirely and utterly on God. That we can't, we can't make it on our own. We're hopeless if we're depending on us. And that's a good place for us to be. Because God promises that he will deliver those who rest entirely, not partially, not somewhat, but entirely upon him. He tells us in Isaiah 57, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. 
But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So there is peace for those who humbly seek peace from the Lord through Christ. But for those who rest in themselves, for those who trust in their own power, there is no peace. Let us then pray for continued humility before God, that He might deliver us through what He has done in Christ. Um, And we need to keep in prayer the many folks who are in need, in our midst, but also... uh, Abroad, uh, We think of the news this past week of the, the wildfire in Maui, Hawaii, uh, which at last count had left 93 people dead and uh, countless hundreds homeless. Um, this world is filled with hurt. And the only one who can soothe that hurt is Christ. So let's pray to Him. Lord, we thank You. That you who are holy and just are also merciful and kind. Thank you for sending your Son to deliver us from our sins and to take upon himself the penalty for all that we had done. Lord, we don't deserve the mercy and the love that you pour out upon us. But we are so grateful for it. Father, we pray that you would forgive us all the sins that we commit. And that you would give us assurance each day. That we are no longer, because we have turned to Christ, we are no longer defined by those sins. We are no longer held captive to the fear of death and hell. But we now are your sons and daughters through Christ, holy and righteous in your sight, the debt for our sin having been paid, the future that you have held out before us unthinkably bright. Father, cause us to live in gratitude. Cause us to live in a way that demonstrates our new identity. That the world looking upon us might be amazed at the difference that you have made in us. Father, we pray that you would work all the circumstances of our lives to demonstrate the change that you have made. Enable us, Lord, to live in a way that shows forth your holiness, your love, your faithfulness, your forgiveness. Teach us to be bold in telling others where our hope is found. Cause our words, our deeds, our very desires to be transformed so as to reveal your character. And Lord, help us to build up one another in that way. Urging one another patiently and lovingly to live in a way that demonstrates the change that you have made. 
that demonstrates that we do not live for ourselves, but that we live to show love to you and to our neighbors. Lord, you have laid difficult providences upon many of our members as they have dealt with cancer and various other ailments. Lord, we pray that you would provide for them in the midst of those difficulties. That you would grant healing and help and strength and comfort and encouragement to them according to their needs and according to the circumstances of each day. We pray in particular for Bruce and for Linda as Bruce remains at the hospice and as Linda continues dealing with digestive issues and and just weariness. For Dan and Kathy, as Dan continues dealing with cancer and um, looking to other treatment methods and awaiting what the future will hold. For, for Keith and Lori, as they deal with dementia and Parkinson's and uh, various related ailments. For Joel and Maggie, as Joel deals with leukemia and, uh, and as they deal with other uh, ailments. For, oh, for others, Lord, for Bob and Margaret, for Jamie and uh, David, for Larry, and for others, Lord, you know, the, you know the struggles that we face. You know the hardships that have not been made known to us and, and others that have been long-term struggles with pain and injuries and Ill, uh, illnesses. Lord, we pray that you would provide for each one. And not just with physical healing, but also for those who are wrestling with ongoing, besetting sin, for those dealing with doubts, with depression, with grief, with difficulties in their relationships. Lord, this world is filled with tears, but you are the one who wipes away every tear. We pray that you would provide for each one exactly what they need in that moment, that they might see that their hope and their strength and their life and their all is in you. We pray for our loved ones, Lord. We think especially of little JT, uh, Russ and Chris's nephew, as he recovers from his burns. We pray that you would comfort and strengthen him. Likewise for Judy's sister, Marcia as she deals with pancreatic cancer, for Travis's cousin Nick uh, dealing with cancer, for, uh, for others, Lord, among our loved ones and our friends. We pray that you would comfort them and use us to bring them encouragement. And Lord, we pray for our consistory and our council as they're preparing to meet this week, as they deal with difficult matters of pastoral care and Uh, stewardship of the resources you've entrusted to us, Lord. Give them wisdom and grace. Provide them with guidance and with continued unity that it might be evident that, uh, that the decisions they're making, they're making by your spirit and your wisdom. And Lord, you have given to your church here at Grace and in every place where your people gather. 
You have given us a comfort and a a strength that is beyond what this world knows. And this world is desperately in need. We think of the, the many who have lost loved ones and homes and jobs in Hawaii due to the wildfires. Lord, we pray that you would not merely relieve the discomfort of the moment, but that you would use the loss and the grief that they're experiencing to draw them close to you and to show them the hope and the the strength that can only be found in Christ. Make your people to be bold in not only meeting the needs of those who have lost so much, but in telling them where their true need can be met in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the needs before us among the unbelievers in our lives, in our communities, in our workplaces, even in our families. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom to reach out to them in a way that is loving and filled with conviction. That we might lead them to the hope, the only hope that mankind can know. And now, Lord, we pray that you would equip us for spreading that message through the word that is proclaimed. And that you would fill us with conviction deepening our faith, strengthening our hope through the sacrament that we will partake of. Lord, we ask all of this with gratitude that you hear us, that you love us, that you call us your own. For we pray it in the name of Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look to God's Word, let's sing together God's Word. From our Blue Psalter hymnal number 261, this is a rendering of Psalm 121, which is a confession that our hope is found in the Lord, who never leaves us, who never forsakes us, who never lets us down. We'll sing all the stanzas of number 261.
Well, our scripture reading this morning is Exodus 11, and we're going to look at the first eight verses, the first eight verses of Exodus 11. Um, This passage kind of takes up, we're in the midst of the incident that we concluded with in chapter 10. The last thing we heard in chapter 10 was Pharaoh casting Moses out, saying, you shall never see my face again, for in the day that you see my face, you will surely die, right? And, uh, and Moses says, fine, you won't see my face again. And it stops rather abruptly there. What we're going to see in chapter 11 is a brief interlude, God explaining to Moses and through Moses to Israel something of the hope that they have for what is about to come. And then we hear Moses offer a parting word to Pharaoh and then a little concluding bit there. So that's, that kind of puts it in context for you. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon, or yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our Lord, There is much that we do not know concerning the future. You don't know what illness or disease may befall you in a year or a decade. You don't know what friend might betray you, breaking your confidence. You can't know how circumstances affecting your work might lead you to use your gifts in ways very different than you do now. And you certainly cannot know the cultural changes that might affect your life or that of your family. There is much about the future that we cannot know until it happens. And in some ways, that's a blessing. If we knew about the hardships that we would face, we might be consumed with worry or fear. 
If we knew in advance about our sorrow, it might leave us unable to enjoy the present. Knowledge of heartache yet to come might prevent the enjoyment of friends and loved ones today. So it can be a mercy, it can be a gift from God himself that we cannot see the future. Nonetheless, God does show us something of what the future holds. Because while we don't necessarily need to know all of the little details, we do need to know the big picture. Because we need to be able to prepare for eternity. We need to be able to comprehend the cost of the decisions we make about how we live and how we relate to God. So while God hides from us many of the details about the future, He makes it exceptionally clear to us what the broad sweep of history holds so that we might prepare well for eternity and so that we might well order our relationship with Him. And that's something of the the message that we find here in Exodus 11. God is about to hold His enemies in Egypt accountable for the evil that they have committed. And they need to understand that so that when the punishment befalls them, they don't misinterpret it. They don't think it's just coincidence. They don't think it's some... uh, False God of theirs pouring out His wrath against them? No, they need to understand what is happening and why it is occurring. And meanwhile, God's people, who have endured so much heartache and so much pain and so much loss, they need to know that relief and with it, justice is coming. And we need to know the same. Because we live in a world that's filled with injustice. We live in a a world that is filled with hurt. And we need to know that's not endless. Our relief, our complete deliverance is coming, and with it, justice for those who have oppressed God's people. That's what the Lord's doing here in chapter 11. God is granting a glimpse of what the future holds. He's showing both his enemies and his own people a glimpse of what the future holds. And he starts out, well, really it's kind of intermixed. What he shows for the benefit of his enemies, what he shows for the benefit of his people. But the first thing we're going to look at is what he shows his enemies, which is the incomparable grief of justice. Again, remember the context of this passage. Up to this point, Pharaoh and his people have endured nine plagues. They have been humiliated along with all their false gods. Their food supplies have been wiped out. Their land lies in ruins. And yet still, their king stands stubbornly opposing Israel and its mighty God. It's absolutely insane after all that Egypt has endured. And yet still, Pharaoh refuses to concede that he's not in charge. That he doesn't get the final say. And so, he's going to be told the cost of his stubborn rebellion before Moses departs from from him the final time. Now, at the very start of this text, we hear God giving assurance of Moses of what he plans to do. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague. 
I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This plague with which God will conclude his dealings in bringing Israel out, it's going to be an unthinkable plague. And therefore, the result will bring about Israel's deliverance. God leaves no doubt concerning the ultimate effect of this plague. In fact, the way it's written in the Hebrew provides the strongest possible assurance that what is promised here is going to happen. Now, these first three verses have significant implications for Israel. We're going to come back to that because I really, I really think it's important that we conclude with that uplifting message, that encouragement, because it's an encouragement for us. So we're going to skip ahead to verse 4, because verse 4 speaks to the enemies of God. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Now, midnight in that age didn't have the, quite the same connotation as it has now. For us, midnight is a particular time, a particular instant on the clock. They weren't quite that precise. For them, midnight meant exactly that, the middle of the night. The word that's rendered here referred to the darkest watches of the night, the time when most people are asleep, the time when even those who were tasked with staying awake and and guarding the people were struggling to keep their eyes open. It was the time of deepest darkness, the time of greatest vulnerability. That makes midnight the time when fear is most rampant. Because the people knew that if enemies were creeping up on them, this is the time to do it. The time when they would have the greatest concealment. And even if there are no enemies coming against them, this is the time when they wonder if that might be so. Because they can't see. And that was even worse for Egypt because their strongest god, Amon-Ra, they regarded as the personification of the sun. They grieved when the sun set because it indicated Amun-Ra departing from them. This was the time when they were spiritually at their most, most vulnerable. Dark night was a time of terror for Egypt, not for Israel, right? Not for us. We just sang from Psalm 121 about how our God will neither slumber nor sleep. We know that God watches over us when there is no one else. And when we can't see, when we are powerless, when we are weak, He sees clearly. But not Egypt. Their false gods offered no such hope. And so at this point of deepest fear and vulnerability, God Himself assures Pharaoh he will go forth into the land. He won't just send some servant to do his will, but God himself will go out in the midst of Egypt for justice. One minister put it this way, because Pharaoh will not let God's people go out of Egypt, God himself will go out into Egypt. And what he brings when he goes into Egypt will not be good for them. This final plague will have a twofold function. First and foremost, this is a punishment Unique to Egypt, 
Egypt had committed grievous sins against Israel, so God was going to bring justice against them that was fitting. But at the same time, this is foreshadowing something greater. In this last judgment against Egypt, we see an image of the final judgment, the judgment that all men will face, the judgment that no one will be able to avoid. And that judgment, too, will come in the midst of the deepest darkness. Amos 5 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? What God was bringing against Egypt was meant to be a warning for all men, not just for the people of ancient pagan lands, but for the people of our age and our land and our generation. Just like the day announced by Moses, the day of the Lord will be a day of wrath, inspiring terror when it arrives. It will bring the wrath of God Himself upon all lands, upon all people, expressing His perfect justice against those who lived in rebellion against Him. Moses declares or describes the justice awaiting Egypt in verses 5 and 6. He says, God is about to bring the death of the firstborn children of Egypt. Now we're not told how this is going to come about. Whether he would send a terrible fast-acting plague, whether he would suddenly miraculously cause their hearts to stop or their lungs to stop or their brains to stop or whether there would be some other means of accomplishing it. What we do know is that none among the people of Egypt would be exempt. In every house, someone would die. In the house of the rich, loud cries of lamentation would be heard. In the house of the lowest of the poor, weeping would fill the air. Even among the few livestock that remained, the firstborn of the cattle would die. Folks, we can't even imagine the immensity of the impending grief that would befall Egypt. We grieve when those who are old die because of the loss that we experience. But how great is our grief when someone young dies? A child, an infant, a young person. Because that's not what we're accustomed to, obviously. Typically it is the child burying the parent, not the other way around. But also because we're hardwired to want to protect them, to love them, to surround them with our care. We want to take the hurt. We don't want them to endure it. They're so full of life, so full of potential. So when they die, our grief is great. It is almost insatiable. Now imagine a whole land reeling with the grief of the firstborn dying. Some of them certainly being old or middle-aged, but many of them being mere babes or young children. 
We can't even begin to imagine the depth and the breadth of the grief that would grip that land. Question is why? What was the reason why God would send the death of the firstborn children? Well, folks, this is an act of pure justice. Recall what God said to Moses back in Exodus 4. You shall say to Pharaoh, this is Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God regarded Israel as his firstborn son, in part foreshadowing the way he would adopt as his own children all of those who would come to him by faith in Christ. But in part also describing the fervency of his love for this people whom he had chosen. So he warned Pharaoh, you will let my firstborn... That's better. Now, of course, Pharaoh was not alone in enslaving Israel, was he? Certainly, he was cruel in his enslaving. But he could not have succeeded in that were not the whole land complicit. I mean, remember, this had gone on for 420 years at this point. This was a land that, or a, a sin that had encompassed generation after generation after generation of Egypt. Had Pharaoh, had his commands concerning the enslavement and the abuse of Israel not been heeded, he would have been powerless. And remember, it was the people of the land who benefited from their enslavement. They were the ones who avoided the hard jobs. They were the ones who enjoyed the beautiful building projects. They were the ones who were enriched by the slave labor of Israel. All of Egypt ultimately was responsible for enslaving and abusing the firstborn son of God. And so all of Egypt would suffer the justice for it. And don't forget how greatly they suffered. The Lord resolved to rescue his people only after hearing their constant cries of sorrow, their constant plea for deliverance. Remember, they were regarded as property of the state. It didn't matter what your gifts were, what your dreams were, what your abilities were, how great your intellect was. You were a slave and you would do the labor that the state commanded you to do. You were treated as... Lowly animals, in fact, livestock were regarded as more important, more valuable than Israelites. When they became more numerous than was prudent, when they became a threat, their, their very children, their infants were killed cruelly by throwing them into the Nile River. When they failed at their labor, they were beaten mercilessly. When there was a dangerous job that no one wanted to do, make a slave do it. What's the loss of a slave worth? Having treated God's firstborn so 
cruelly. How could Egypt dare to complain about the suffering that was about to befall them? It was justice, perfectly meted out by our just God. And the result, verse 8, All these your servants shall come to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. God told Moses to expect a response overwhelming. Pharaoh might remain hardened in his sin, but the people who served Pharaoh would not. And they would overrule him, they would veto his stubbornness, and they would send the people of Israel forth. In fact, they would bow before Moses. They would acknowledge his superiority and the superiority of the true God over all Egypt. And so both Moses and Israel would be justified in the sight of all the world over against Pharaoh and Egypt. Now that's fascinating. But what's it mean for us? Well, folks, above all else, it stands as a warning about the judgment that is to befall mankind. Because that day of deep darkness that this judgment foreshadowed, it's coming. Men can deny it all they want. They can pretend that it will all be just fine, but the fact of the matter is a day of reckoning is coming, and that day of reckoning will be led by the one who is absolutely just. All men will be made to answer for how they have behaved. Young and old, rich and poor, none shall escape. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is a call for self-evaluation. Set before the bar of true justice, how do you measure up? Have you done what God has called you to do? Have you shunned what God has said he hates? Have you loved God and your neighbor as you must? Put it in the context of your own life, of your own culture. In an age that thinks nothing of taking God's name in vain, have you followed suit? And have you stood up to defend His name before those who would blaspheme? In an age that habitually desecrates the Sabbath, Have you fit in and used the Lord's holy day simply for your own enjoyment? In a culture that revels in lust outside of marriage, have you guarded your eyes and guarded your heart and protected your marriage? In a land where thousands of infants are murdered daily, not unlike Egypt of old in its treatment of the slaves. Have you stood up against our Pharaoh? Have you sought to preserve those who are powerless to preserve themselves? How different are you from the Egyptians of old? I think if we're honest, we have to concede that we're not that Terribly different. We're certainly not innocent. 
faced with the impending judgment of true justice. Every one of us deserves God's wrath. Every one of us. And the only way we can escape is if someone else stands in that place for us. That's why Jesus came. We're going to witness the sacrament in just a bit that demonstrates so powerfully how His body was broken because that's what we deserved. How His blood, His life was poured out which is what our sins merited. The only way we can escape the true justice that will befall all of mankind is if we are trusting in Christ and He has taken that punishment for us. That is the only escape. Otherwise, the incomparable grief of judgment that is meant to befall God's enemies will befall us. However, there's also another side to that coin. And that's the relief about to be experienced by Israel. Because God is concerned about far more than merely getting vengeance on His enemies. He's also concerned to maximize His glory and to restore His people perfectly. And that's what we see in the rest of this text. How for God's servants, that coming day of judgment brings the unrestrained joy of justification. First thing we see in that respect is the assurance of their deliverance from slavery. That's verse 1. God assures Moses He will deliver Israel from their slavery. That's immense. Again, 420 years had passed. Think of all the loss they had suffered, all the humiliation and the pain that generations of God's people had endured, the hopelessness of their situation after more than four centuries had passed with their legs in chains, with their hands filled with the calluses of Egypt's forced labor. And all of it is about to end. Deliverance is in sight. What an immense encouragement that must have been. But it wasn't just that, because Israel had suffered at Egypt's hand tremendously. They had toiled hard for the enrichment of a people that hated them. They had endured abuse upon abuse upon abuse, yet never had they been compensated for their labor. And so God would provide, not merely escape, but also repayment. We hear that in verse 2. Both men and women among Israel were to ask their Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver. They would plunder. They would plunder the people of Egypt, not by force of arms, but gently. How amazing is that? How astounding is that? You look at the ancient peoples of the world. The Gauls, the Germans, the Greeks, the Romans. They plundered their enemies mercilessly, but always at the tip of the spear, always at the blade of the sword. The plunder was always blood-stained because it was ripped from the hands of the deceased, but not here. God would so work in the hearts of the Egyptians that they would recognize this is justice. They would recognize they deserve it, and they would recognize... The absolute and utter folly of trying to continue to oppose this true and living God. 
and so asked for their gold and silver, they would give it willingly. And in doing so, God, God was not only compensating them for the generations of loss and suffering they had endured, but he was also preparing them to be a priestly people. When we get a little further in this book, we're going to see that God had called his people to be a worshiping people. A people who were devoted to the, the, the worship and the glory of God. And part of that would mean building a tabernacle where God could be worshipped. And the people were to contribute to that. Now what could a slave people contribute to the building of a place for worshipping the holy and glorious God? Well, nothing. Until they plundered all of Egypt of its gold, of its silver, of its precious jewels. And suddenly, having been so enriched, they would be equipped for the worship to which they soon would be called. Remember, they couldn't see that yet. They had no idea why God was so powerfully enriching them. And yet, He was doing exactly that. Does He not do that for us? Young people, children, He has given you gifts, privileges, abilities, knowledge... You have no idea yet how you're going to end up using that. Most of you have no idea what work God is going to call you to do, what your families ultimately will look like, what challenges God will set before you, the people whom you are meant to serve. But already now He is enriching you. Already now He is filling you with things that you will use to worship and to glorify Him. How amazing. It's not the main point of this text, but it's certainly worth worth noting how God already now is enriching you. But this is a, a greater foreshadowing also. Because God's people today and in every day, in every age, we look forward with longing to our full deliverance. We look forward to being delivered from our sin, but also delivered from the hatred of an unbelieving world. Because this world does hate the people of God. They, they hate God, and since they can't reach Him, they hate us as proxies. And they show that in a wide variety of ways. In the, the scornful way they speak of us, the many attempts to silence us, the tireless efforts to corrupt the people of God. We long for deliverance from that. But God promises more than just deliverance. He promises justice. Proverbs 13, verse 22, says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And so in Revelation 21, we're told about the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth that are to come. And of that new creation, we're told the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter. That tells us is that all of the good things, all of the riches, all of the glory that this world's unbelieving powers have ever possessed. In that age to come, in that creation 
soon to be cleansed. It will all be cleansed and it will be entrusted to the people of God. Today we might look at those unbelievers and shake our heads with lack of understanding. How is it that we worship God and yet we struggle to get by? How is it that we serve the Lord and we seek to tithe on what He gives us and yet they... They've got the boat and the jet skis and the two new cars and the house that's way too big and the... And we're rich. Think about our brothers and our sisters in the Middle East, in Africa, in China, in North Korea who are utterly and completely impoverished while the communists or while the Muslims are enriched beyond belief. They scrape to get by. They think it a privilege to be able to eat meat occasionally. But on that day, all the riches that were hoarded by God's enemies, all of the glory that they sought to amass, it will be poured out upon those who lacked in this life, those who were abused in this life, those who were harmed in this life. What God's people will not receive. They will receive compensation. They will receive glory. But what they will not receive is wrath. As I said before, we deserve it. Israel too. They were sinful. They deserved punishment. But both they and we escape God's wrath. Not not because we deserve it. Israel received escape from wrath. Israel received the love and the glory from God because He chose to choose them, period. It's interesting, in verse 7, we're told, Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Dogs in that day were not the dogs of today. Nobody bred their designer breeds of dog. Nobody had their little pocket chihuahua or their prized hunting dog. There was no prized dog. They were scavengers who hunted for their food in the streets. They were scorned as unclean animals by all of mankind. They were hated, and so they hated man. They feared man. But he says, not even these lowliest of scavengers who growl at the sight of a man, not even one of them shall growl against one of God's people. They will be utterly exempt from every sign of wrath or hatred because God had chosen them. God would provide for them. God would deliver them. And God promises not merely to deliver but to vindicate We see that in verse 3. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. That's backward from what we should expect. We should expect them to hate Moses and Israel because of all the harm and all the destruction that had befallen their land. But instead, God caused those people to recognize this was just. This was appropriate. This was right. And so they would hold them in high esteem. And in fact, 
Verse 8 says that they were the ones who would veto Pharaoh's hardness of heart and would send the people from the land. Do you recognize what that means? They regarded Pharaoh as the embodiment of one of their gods. But they would reject that God's decree. They would reject that God's so-called wisdom and they would themselves send Israel forth. The same is coming. Today we hear and we feel the scorn of an unbelieving world. Increasingly in our land, we experience that scorn. But the day is coming soon when they will bow the knee before God and acknowledge that He is the true God. When they will cast off all of their false gods, acknowledging them to have been a misguided attempt to pretend that the true God doesn't exist. And they will confess to us, you were right and we should have believed you. That day's coming. We don't see it yet. Today we see their scorn. Today we see what looks like their prosperity. But brothers and sisters, that day is coming soon. So expect it. Anticipate it. Hold tight to Christ, knowing that He is the victor and that He will bring for you the victory. And in the meantime, be nourished. Be nourished with the certainty of what He has done. Be nourished with the certainty that the victory has been won. Be nourished, strengthened, preserved by holding firm to Him. And sooner than you can imagine, that day will dawn when all His enemies receive His wrath and when all of us see the fullness of the the victory, the fullness of the deliverance that is ours. To God, through Christ, be all the glory now and evermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and we praise You that You have provided perfectly the victory that we long for And that we await only its unveiling. Until that day dawns, hold us firmly, Lord. Cause us to rejoice in that which we do not yet see, but which you have promised. And Lord, bring many more into your kingdom before that day of Christ dawns. That your glory might fill the creation as we confess you and sing your praises. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Beloved, in response, let us stand and sing together. We're going to sing hymn number 388 from our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 388, Rejoice, Rejoice Believers. And we'll sing all four stanzas.
if, uh, if you would like to read along in our uh, Lord's Supper form, it's on page 39, page 39. Beloved, in the day or in the night in which Jesus was delivered up to be crucified, he gathered his disciples around. And he taught them to partake of this sacrament in remembrance of him. It is wise for us, as we prepare to do that ourselves, that we remember the significance of what we do here. So let us consider together the purpose for which our Lord has instituted his supper, that we should do this in remembrance of him. And this is how we remember him by it. First, let us be fully persuaded in our hearts that our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the promises made to our forefathers in the Old Testament, was sent by the Father into this world, that he assumed our flesh and blood, that he took upon himself for us the wrath of God under which we should have perished eternally, that from the beginning of his incarnation until the end of his life on earth, he fulfilled for us all obedience and righteousness of the divine law. This was especially evident when the weight of our sins and of the wrath of God caused him to sweat drops of blood in the garden. He was bound so that we might be loosed from our sins, and afterward he suffered countless insults so that we might never be put to shame. Let us confidently believe that he was innocent, yet put to death that we might be acquitted on the day of judgment, that he even allowed his own blessed body to be nailed to the cross so as to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In so doing, he took from us the curse and bore it himself so that he might fulfill or might fill us with his blessing. He humbled himself to the very deepest reproach and anguish of hell, in body and soul on the cross, when he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did all of this so that we might be accepted by God, never to be rejected by him. Indeed, with his death and the shedding of his blood, he confirmed the new and eternal covenant, the covenant of grace and reconciliation, when he said, It is finished. In order that we might firmly believe that we belong to this covenant of grace, during the Last Supper, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, as a sure reminder and pledge, you shall be admonished and assured of my great love and faithfulness toward you. Because you otherwise would have suffered eternal death, I give my body and blood for you in my death on the cross. And as certainly as this bread is broken before you and this cup is given to you, and with your mouth you eat and drink in remembrance of me, so surely do I nourish and refresh for everlasting life your hungry and thirsty souls with my crucified body and shed blood. From the institution of this Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he directs our faith to his perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross as the only foundation of our salvation. By this sacrifice, he has become to our hungry and thirsty souls 
the true food and drink of life eternal. For by his death he has taken away the cause of our eternal death and misery, our sin. He has also obtained for us the life-giving Spirit who dwells in Christ our head and enables us who are his members to have communion with him and to be made partakers of his riches, including eternal life, righteousness, and glory. Besides, this, by this same Spirit, we are also united as members of, of one body in true Christian love. As the Apostle Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As many grains are ground to prepare one loaf of bread, and as many grapes are pressed together to produce wine, so we who by, by true faith are incorporated into Christ shall be one body through Christian love. For the sake of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, he loved us so greatly in order that we might show his love toward one another, not only in words, but also in deeds. May the almighty, merciful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ help us in this through his Holy Spirit. Amen. That we may obtain all these blessings, let us humble ourselves before God and with true faith Implore him for his grace. And we'll close this prayer by praying together the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. O merciful God and Father, we cherish the blessed memory of the death and suffering of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that in this supper, you will so work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that with true confidence we might give ourselves up more and more unto your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this might allow our burdened and contrite hearts to be nourished and refreshed with the true body and blood of him who is true God and true man, the only heavenly bread. Empower us to no longer live in our sins, knowing that he lives in us and we in him. May we truly be partakers of the new and everlasting covenant of grace. May we not doubt that you will forever be our gracious Father, who does not impute the guilt of our sins to us, and who provides us with all that we need for body and soul as your dear children and heirs. Grant us also your grace that we may take up our cross cheerfully, deny ourselves, uh, deny ourselves, confess our Savior, and in all tribulation, with uplifted head, Expect our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. There he will make our mortal bodies to be like unto his glorified body and will take us to be with him in eternity. Answer us, O God and merciful Father, through Jesus Christ who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. By this holy supper, may we also be strengthened in the Catholic, undoubted Christian faith, of which we make profession with heart and mouth, using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That we may be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread. Let us not cling with our hearts to external things like bread and wine, but lift our hearts to heaven, where our advocate, Jesus Christ, is at the right hand of his heavenly Father, where the articles of our Christian faith direct us. Let us not doubt that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with his body and blood through the working of his Holy Spirit, as truly as we receive the holy bread and drink in remembrance of him. The bread which we break is a communion of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. The cup of blessing which we bless is a communion of the blood of Christ. Take, drink, remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins.
Beloved in the Lord, since the Lord has now nourished our souls at His table, let us together praise His holy name with thanksgiving, and let every one say in his heart, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be spared by his, or saved by his life. Therefore my mouth and my heart shall show forth the praise of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. O merciful God and Father, we thank you with all our heart that of your boundless mercy you have given us your only begotten Son for a mediator, a sacrifice for our sins, and as our food and drink unto life eternal. We thank you that you gave us a true faith, whereby we have become partakers of these benefits. You have united us to Christ and to each other in the communion of the saints. You have given your Son for us and to us, and have proclaimed his saving death to the whole world. Having signified and sealed the atoning sacrifice of your Son for us, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, also make us witnesses to this good news among our neighbors. Strengthen us in faith to live gratefully in this present age as we await our Savior's return in glory. We pray this in His name. Amen. If the deacons would come forward, we'll give our offerings in thanksgiving for all that Christ has done. Let us pray for this portion of our worship. Lord, we thank you that you have given us life and all things that pertain to life. Receive now these, our tithes and our offerings, in gratitude for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Our offering song is number 432 in our Psalter hymnal. I greet thee who my sure Redeemer art. We're going to use an alternate tune that you'll find quite familiar. Number 432.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.